Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. And we have a website at www.adogs.info and you can go up to that website and see our press release, 691. And this is it. Private schools? Question mark. We, the taxpayers, pay for them. They should be taken over and be public schools. In the last week before schools opened, after the summer holidays, three things happened. One, one of the biggest critics of the Federal Coalition's reversal on Gonski School funding, Adrian Piccoli, was dumped as Education Minister in the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian's Cabinet reshuffle on Sunday last. Pickley, a country MP who understood the importance of public education for country children, was farewelled by many, many accolades from teachers, principals and public school supporters. Secondly, the Education Minister Simon Birmingham has committed to have a school funding plan ready for the April Council of Australian Governments meeting. That's COAG. At the same time, Birmingham has attempted to divert attention from the issue of glaring inequalities in Australian education and falling standards by, listen to this, introducing tests, literacy tests, numeracy tests for grade one children. And thirdly, by far the most important event was the production by Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd of a report entitled The Vanishing Private School, with statistics proving that the costs of private schools are now substantially met by public funds. In an article in the Guardian newspaper, they asked the question, can we really call schools private when they get so much public money? Question mark. And if you go up to a certain website, you can get their report. And dogs have reproduced their introduction at the end of the press release. On the facts and the figures issue, 
Dogs note that Bonner and Shepherd are not even counting capital, indirect taxpayer expenditures and endowments in their calculations. And yet, in upfront direct grants alone, some private schools are getting more than the local public school. But dogs have a very simple solution to the education problem in Australia. Dogs have always had a very simple solution. If a school takes public money, it should be public in purpose, outcome, access, ownership, control, funding, accountability and provision. Private schools have never been and never can be public schools. If they want to be private, they should not receive any public funding whatsoever and if they receive public funding, they should become public schools. The time is rapidly coming where all of the economic arguments are pointing to the fact that they should just be taken over and rationalised because they are far, far, far too expensive to the taxpayer for the common good. So that was our press release and if you go up and look at it, you can also see the introduction. But Robert is going to go into much further detail uh, with their report. It's a very interesting report indeed. They have been promising it for some weeks and it is finally up on the Save Our Schools website and also uh, you can get it on our website. So there you are. That is our press release 691 and over to Robert. Thanks very much, Jane. When Jane, of course, is talking about the website and accessing this document, you can at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, yes, in the school holidays, there's been some very interesting work done. In fact, I would suggest that this document is now one of the seminal documents of the 21st century, early 21st century, when it comes to education policy. Because as the dogs have been warning for now for decades, um, uh, education funding in Australia has now crossed the Rubicon. We've crossed the river where private schools get from the government as much money as public schools. There is no functional financial difference. There are differences in the sort of financial acuities and, and, and how they have to spend their monies and such like and so forth. But in terms of raw dollars, it's now gone on a one-to-one basis. So we've crossed that Rubicon that the, the, um, the dog said we always would, and now we're on the other side. This document, which I think we should deal with in detail on the program today, is something um, we, should, we should view as, as a sort of red-letter day in the way, in the ridiculous way Australia is going. But before I go into that, I just think it should be worth, and we don't usually get particularly bipartisan um, or sort of here on the dogs program because we usually it's a sort of pox on all their houses. Um, but unfortunately the Labor um, in the federal field, the, the Labor Party, has done something that is so morally bankrupt. Um, I find it disgusting um, it's called wedge politics. But what's happened is that the, the, the Federal Minister for Education, Simon Birmingham, um, has obviously tried to save some money and that sort of stuff. He's actually very simply said in an interview on ABC Radio National in the last seven days, the Federal Minister for Education said, if some schools under formulas that have been grandfathered for years and years are getting more than their fair share, this is private schools, then we ought to have a look at the adjustment process. 
So he's saying, actually, it really has gone too far in some cases. We should have a look at it. And Labor's response to this, Labor's response to this by the Education and Deputy Opposition Leader, Tanya Plibersek, um, she stated that the minister should name the schools that would lose funding. And she herself conspicuously refused to condemn overfunding of private schools. So she attempted to politicise it and not condemn the overfunding of private schools. Not the funding, no, 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 the overfunding. She would not condemn the overfunding. Of course, uh, Tanya Pibasek is uh, a graduate of the Roman Catholic uh, system. So I suppose she goes back to school when it comes to these matters. Very sad, very disappointing. It is, actually. Um, so it's not really a left-right thing. It's just, oh, my goodness, what on earth is the Labour Party doing? Um, the Greens haven't spoken up on it yet, but if they do, I'm sure we'll, in, in, in fairness, report that. But to return um, to this interesting paper by um, uh, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd entitled The Vanishing Private School, I think we're going to take a run-up of it because it's a very detailed document, but all of it is interesting and important. And for the first time, uh, Bonner and Shepherd have come pretty much to exactly the dog's position in terms of the way schools should be funded and the reasons for it. But we'll deal with that just after after these messages. Yarra City Council is celebrating International Women's Day on the 8th of March with a week of community events and activities to highlight and recognise the achievements of women. Two key events are the presentation of the Inspirational Women of Yarra Award, Morning Tea and Award Ceremony and Yarra's International Women's Day Business Luncheon. The Council is also hosting a range of exciting activities including women's panel discussions, art and photographic exhibitions, Zumba and yoga classes, women's only swim session and mums and bubs story time. Check out yarracity.vic.gov.au or phone 9205555 for more information. City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial and in podcast and available on the www's at adogs.info. Um, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd state in, I think, rather, rather clear prose that Australia is now in the middle of a remarkable transition. And for many people, this may pass unnoticed, but not for us here at the Dogs. Most of our private schools, which enrol about one-third of students in Australia are actually on the verge of disappearing. Not physically disappearing, but they are vanishing because most are now funded, close to, and in some cases above, similar public schools. In financial terms, they should no longer be considered private. Private schools have long been funded by fees, with additional support from governments. This arrangement has now been turned upside down. All the wealthier private schools are essentially funded by governments. Sorry, all but the wealthier private schools are essentially funded by governments. For majority of private schools, the fees provide additional income, which increasingly takes the total resources to levels well above similar public schools. Now, the rapid growth, and there has been a rapid growth, of their public funding component of private schools raises serious questions about the relationship between private schools, which are open to some but not all, and public schools, which must be available to every child from every family in every location and circumstance. Now, to what extent is it now possible to maintain such an inclusive public system alongside privately owned and operated schools, with similar levels of public funding, but significantly fewer accountabilities and obligations? Similar questions have been asked in the past, 
but they have been easily countered by the argument that it hardly matters. Um, rather than the cost governments, this claims the comparatively low levels of per-student funding represent a major saving for taxpayers. But now, that's just not true. Now is the time to challenge just such long-held narratives. The levels of funding are not low, and any apparent saving has all but evaporated. In Goulburn, in New South Wales, the place where the state aid to private schools symbolically began, governments are now spending $81,000 a year more than would be the case if students weren't in separate schools. Now we can't create a better conversation about the future relationship between the two schools between the two school sectors until we deal with what's actually real now. The near full public funding of private schools and its implications is actually now one of those realities. Now, from the beginning, the relationship between secular authorities, that includes national and regional governments, and private, which are mainly um, sacred authorities or churches. Um, provide and those people providing education has been an issue in many countries, most commonly resolved when governments agree to fully fund non-government schools on the condition that those non-government schools no longer charge fees and that they assume the same obligations as public schools. This is what currently in large parts of the United Kingdom happens. So you can have a Catholic school, which is funded by the government, but the Catholic school has to take anyone that wants to come to it, and it has exactly the same obligations as the state school down the road. How, that's, that's just one way of solving the problem, and that way no one has to talk about religion. Now, in contrast to that situation, both levels of government in Australia rolled out public funding in intermittent and uncoordinated stages, often characterised by particular deals being made with various providers. No one could have been too surprised when the Gonski Review described our funding system as uncoordinated, divisive and unnecessarily complex. Some of the other relevant features of Australia's approach have included the bitter debates, especially in the 1960s over state aid to church schools, the recurring battle between the ideas of funding schools on need against an entitlement to all students, an assumption now proven painfully false that choice and competition improve school quality and student achievement. Now, our framework of schools is described by one observer as one of the inordinate complexity combined with confusion of roles and responsibilities, three sectors, each funded and controlled in its own way, two of them getting funds from three different sources, including fees, a total of seven governments at different stages of three-year electoral cycles and of differing political persuasions. The mismatch between levels of public funding for schools and the extent of their obligations to the taxpayers who support them is just one of many of the common problems. So impassioned discussions around the public funding of non-government schools almost, almost always traverse, among other things, speculation about, and I quote, what would happen if all of the students now in private schools enrolled in public schools? Back to Goulburn. Hmm. We uh, could... And actually, back in the Goulburn days they did manage to enrol the students in the local state schools and then uh, the students didn't want to go back to their Catholic <laughs> schools. They much preferred being in the, in the public schools. That's the story that is not told. 
Like, and look, I can tell you this is real because in many of the debates I have online and in various other forums, there is this question, you can't not fund private schools because what if you took the money away? What would happen to all the kids? The state schools couldn't cope. Take them over. Well, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd say, we, we can frame this in a more specifically. What would be the recurrent funding costs to government if they had to fully fund the education of all school students? So let's just talk about the money, okay? What would happen if governments, state, federal, whatever, had to fully fund the education of all school students? Now, finding answers to such questions involves modelling several what-if scenarios. This is not the same as suggesting preferred policy options. It may not be feasible or desirable, for example, for governments to fully fund the education of all students. But knowing the cost could tell us more about the current realities and better inform policy options. Now, history does record a threat to enrol all private school students in public schools. Albeit, and this is getting back to it, on a small scale, when the Catholic Diocese of Goulburn used such a strategy to depress their claims for state aid. The event itself was short-lived, albeit with long-term impacts, but has taken place amid the mythology of this subject and still provides, in the minds of many people, a killer argument in favour of public funding. And as Jean has said, quite frankly, um, it's not actually a killer it's argument. A myth. But it, it's, abs- it's, it's absolutely a myth. It's a political myth. But even if it's not a myth, that was then and this is now. The provision of some public funding to non-government schools has now become an established and unique element of Australian political life. Many argue that as an issue it was settled long ago, even though the rationale for funding as well as its scale has changed over several decades, along with the amounts of money involved and where it goes. The belief that funding private schools is cost-effective for governments has lingered for decades. In addition, the argument that having parents substantially fund their own children's education and hence, inverted commas, save the public funding carries a certain logic. It conveys a spirit of sacrifice and generosity. Sacrifice in the effort made by some parents to pay school fees and generosity in the way that this apparently releases public funding for other people's children. Now, this is an argument I get a lot, actually, in various debates I have. Parents of children in private schools want to have a moral basis, demand to have a moral goodness, and to be rewarded and to be praised for what they are doing. And it does come in this form. They wish to be praised because they truly love their children enough to sacrifice for their school fees. And... They want to be praised because this, because they're spending the money. This releases money for other poor children. They're joking. No, they're not joking. They, if you challenge this with a parent of a private school uh, student, they will defend this to the hilt. They, they, they will shout. They will scream. They will leave the room. They will call you a communist. They will call you an anarchist. They will say that you're dreaming. They will, they will do anything to defend this because, as in the words of Joe Cowcow-Braith, it is the great, it's the great quest, it is the great moral imperative of the aspirational middle class to find a moral justification for selfishness. It is a quest, eternal, and you cannot sway the parents of many people who send their children to private schools that what they're doing is a good thing, not just for them and their families, but for society as a whole. But there is another reason, apart from that, this belief 
that, that sending children to private schools saves the government money has, has lingered because there has been no widely comparable public available data source that could be used to explore the question. Government statistical reports are generally far too close-grained for the purpose, and as we shall see shortly, actually seem to support many of the more mythic aspects of the argument. But an opportunity is now being presented to us. In the second year of the publication of the MySchool website, the ACARA, the ACARA, Australian Curriculum and Reporting Authority, established a protocol for reporting by individual schools on the funding they received, both capital and recurrent, from all sources. While these are some compatibility issues in the reporting, there are so, these are minor compared to distortions created by other data sources. Schools are now reporting the actual amounts they received and expended, or were received and expended on their behalf by systems each year. Not only does the MySchool website provide an annual tally of each school's recurrent and capital funding, but it also provides, in the form of an Ixia value, that is, a measure to the degree of educational advantage or disadvantage that characterises each group of students in each school. Now, with a suitable degree of statistical care, these data can be interrogated in a range of ways to provide insights that are not available in any comparable way. And I'm going to outline some of these. And this is the meat of the document. This is the important thing that Bonner and Shepherd are saying. And we owe this to Gillard. She forced these schools to give up information which we hadn't had since the days when Fraser was the Minister for Education. Indeed. Now, we'll continue with this um, after these messages. An expensive fundraiser is being held in Melbourne to pay for the far right's continued campaigns in Australia against halal, Muslims and the left, with guest speakers Corey Bernardi and George Christensen. We're calling on everyone to come and protest on February 10th to make their fundraiser a failure. Let the racist rich know they'll always lose in Melbourne. Check out the Facebook event page at Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. That's facebook.com slash campaign ARF or text 0422 726 843 for details. Solidarity trumps hatred. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Programme, Defence of Government Schools, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial, as we always are. This is Robert and Jean, and later on Dale. We are defending government schools. And we're discussing a very, well, I think, a very important and seminal paper by um, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd. And they are now about to embark upon debating what they call implausible scenarios. And they say no one would reasonably suggest that on any given day, like tomorrow, all non-government schools would suddenly close and their students would appear at the doors of the local public schools. Apart from a range of other absurdities, this will create a vast real estate flood of empty school buildings and other facilities, which the government would then be able to acquire at a fire sale rate, Mm. along with lots and lots and lots of newly unemployed teachers. (laughs) It's equally implausible just to calculate the current private, mainly fee contributions, to private schools and represent that amount as the potential additional cost to government. Yeah, let's just... Uh, let's do that, but let's do the calculation anyway. 
<laughs> the total recurrent funding bill for Australia's non-government schools was $18.4 billion in 2014. Of that $18.4 billion, the government paid $10.6 billion. The private sourced income, mainly fees, but other things as well, endowments, um, totaled $7.8 billion. If all of this funding was replaced by governments, then certainly this would amount to a very big sum, $7.8 billion. But the MySchool website shows that much of this funding is well in excess of what is needed or required to ensure that students are achieving at a high standard. We know that in most ICSIA ranges, the total spend on students in Catholic and independent schools is above the level of similar government schools. But for similar levels of student achievement... Get that again? Similar levels of student achievement across all the sectors, but the Catholic and independent schools are receiving more money from all sources. But the achievement is the same. Now, why would the government spend, for example, around $14,000 on each former independent school student from a particularly wealthy background when each similar government school achieves the same level for $3,000 or less? Already we spend too much where it doesn't make a difference and not enough where we could. Now, that's the fundamental inefficiency of the private school system. It's also easy to illustrate an implausible scenario by using productivity commission figures. What would happen if a non-government school student, private school student, funded by the government at the productivity commission's average figure of nine, a bit over $9,000 a year crosses over to their local government school? In the manner in which the Productivity Commission's figures are commonly used and interpreted, this study, that, that, that student would suddenly cost the government around 16000 So, Why? Apply, applying such a transformation to all other students in non-government schools would cost governments, as is sometimes claimed, around $9 billion in annual recurrent funding. Now, fortunately, neither is a realistic scenario, nor does it lead to statistically supportable conclusions. As was noted um, when they came up with the uneven playing field, the Commission's figures for government schools are inflated by a number of accounting artefacts that are only applied to government schools. It's been like that since 1969. Mm. They take the, the, the total and just um, uh, divide. Mm. Whereas the government school system deals with all of the expensive areas of educational provision. For example, the children in the outback cost a lot more. Hmm. They also included in it the libraries and other public education facilities. They've uh, misinterpreted and misused the figures from the word go. Indeed. Um but if we, and now we have this resource. If we look at the my school funding data instead, Jean, mm. we find that the average cost of governments for each private school student in 2014 was around 9,200, which is quite close to the Commission's figure of slightly over 9,000. But on the other hand, the average government school recurrent funding figure from the my school website is actually closer to 12,000 rather than the Commission's made-up figure of 16. Now, if we substitute the my school figures for the Productivity Commission figures in the crossing over calculation, this then takes that $9 billion down to about $3.6 billion. But such a calculation is still well wide of the mark because it is based on the gross sector averages. 
It's often said that the average conceals much, if not more, than they reveal. Hence, the second major flaw in the scenario is the implicit assumption that there is comparability or even equivalence between the average government and non-government school student. No such equivalence exists. As we've shown on many occasions, the government, Catholic and independent sectors serve significantly different segments of the Australian school population. Now, the average independent school serves a generally upper-middle-class population in a relatively affluent area of a major population centre. The school will be part of a sector with an average ICSIA value of around 1,070, 1,000 being the average for the nation. By contrast, the average government school student will probably be attending a school in an outer metropolitan or provincial or rural area perhaps with a substantial Indigenous enrolment, with an ICSIA value of around about 985. Catholic school students generally find themselves in schools somewhere between these two poles, with an average ICSIA of 1,045. So richer rather than poorer. These are considerable differences, given that two-thirds of our schools fall between 950 and 1150. Thus... The profile of education need across the government sector schools is such that its students are, on average, more expensive to educate than students in either the Catholic or the independent sectors. Surely there are no other areas in public life where it would be argued that equal treatment on such, an, on such unequal constellations of need would be fair and proper. Yet, whenever Education Minister Birmingham makes a statement quoting Productivity Commission figures, to the fact that private schools only receive 60% of the funding of government schools. That's exactly the implication he implies. Well, that's a rubbish figure. That's just wrong, isn't it? <coughs> it is indeed. That would be unsatisfactory end to the discussion were it not for the fact that the MySchool data provides a mean for actually comparing the relative educational challenges presented. We know the data's there. Birmingham can get hold of this. He doesn't have to use dodgy figures. It's his job to get hold of it. So let's just talk about a more plausible scenario rather than closing all the private schools tomorrow. Another perhaps more realistic view to that crossing over scenario would be one in which the students and teachers did not move. But the government agreed to meet the recurrent funding of all willing non-government schools and funded them on the same basis as government schools with a comparable needs profile. The financial data for all these schools related to school funding and the latest data available. That is to say, if people from poorer backgrounds are more challenging and require more resources, then that will be reflected in the funding model. In the analysis that follows, um, we divide up the schools from the 216 MySchool data set into nine ICSIA ranges, plus a further division for those schools that for one reason or another did not have a published ICSIA. The financial data for all these schools related to school funding year, and they haven't come up with the data for... Um, 2016. Now, the most striking picture that emerges when you divide them up into nine is that higher rates of funding are applied to schools with lower ICSIA ranges and conversely reducing towards the higher, more advantaged ends. Now, a brief inspection shows that two-thirds of all schools are to be found in the ICSIA ranges from 950 to around about 1149. Within this zone, the government funding per student within each range varies little from sector to sector, which is to say, at the moment, the government is funding each of the sectors basically equally. equally. 
This whole idea of sending your money or sending your money to a private school is saving the government money is not true. Now, applying their methodology across all Catholic and independent schools in Australia would increase the total annual government recurrent funding bill from its current rate by about $1.9 billion. Not $9 billion, $1.9 billion, or about 4.5% of existing expenditure. This is about half the $3.6 billion calculated in the flawed average scenario that Birmingham keeps rolling out, and of course around one-fifth of the demonstrably silly claims of $9 billion. But there's more. <laughs> there are actually a number of additional factors that would see the apparent extra cost of $1.9 billion further reduced or even eliminated. Or duplication of facilities, for one. While they are more difficult to calculate, they need to be considered. Firstly, duplication of facilities. As Jean quite rightly points out, we have more desks and chairs and gyms and uh, uh, engineering and technical labs and cooking places and libraries in schools than we actually need. And administration blocks. In Australia, and administration blocks and, and, and the Catholic Education Office and the Education Department yes, and the independent schools. Yes, the Catholic Education Office, yes. <laughs> Three Good separate idea. bureaucracies, you can save money there. Yep. Duplication <laughs> of services would be the first way you would save some money. Mm. Secondly... In 2014, my school figures, which are the most recent available, they're already two years old. Recurrent funding in the period from 20, 2009 to 14 showed funding to non-government schools increasing at twice the rate of increases to government schools. It's highly unlikely that this consistent trend has reversed over the last two years. So stop increasing the rate of funding to private schools. That already saves you some money. Secondly, as Connors and McMorrow have indicated, claims of cost savings under current arrangements ignore the savings that could accrue from economies of scale that would apply if one authority ran schools in each state. Rather than a scatter of uneconomic government and non-government schools, leaving aside various arguments around diversity and choice, it would certainly be the case that our current framework comes at a cost and would be lower if there were better planning, sharing in areas such as teacher supply and professional development, buildings, equipment, technology and transport. A third factor would also need to be considered. Sorry, a fourth factor, I should say. So far as we've asked about the cost to government of educating all students, but what if they didn't all want to be publicly educated? It is likely that at a certain point, many parents would prefer to pay the entire cost of their children's education in a well-endowed private school. So those students would not be a cost to the government at all. How many, how many parents would do that? Well, it's quite common for around 6% of students in similar countries to be enrolled in fully private-funded schools. For Australia, it's reasonable to assume that any remaining private schools would, at the very least, enrol a similar proportion of students. Well, that cuts, that cuts 6% off the top. <clears throat> Which students would enrol and what was the current government expenditure can be for students? Packers yes. and for all the billionaires. Mm. We've got lots of billionaires now that could quite afford to pay for their children in these uh, over-resourced mm. private schools. Now, while extra is not a measure of the family income of enrolled students, it can be considered for the purposes to be a reasonable proxy. The most advantaged students, as indicated by extra, will be most likely to remain in private schools where they pay all the money. There are 169, 568 students in non-government schools with school with school exceed values over 1150, and they form 
4.64% of enrolments. So we wouldn't have to pay for them. In other similar countries, these students would not receive any government funding other than notional subsidy amounts for various purposes. In Australia, these 1,069,568 received a total of 926 million in 2014. Removing this amount would reduce the total government funding bill of 1.9 billion to less than a billion. Well, these would be the parents who wouldn't be prepared to start saying that they're sacrificing because there is no sacrifice. They're buying special privileges and they know exactly what they're doing and they can afford it. And they're quite happy to admit that they can afford it. They don't have to cry poor. Do you know what? And from the dog's perspective, go for Good your life. For, Good, luck luck you. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. Go for yours. None of our business. We can't talk about you. In fact, Jean, you, sh- you should stop talking about these people because these people aren't part of the, the government funding system. So, well, they shouldn't be. They have they, they they have the right these people if that's what they want to do to do what they like, and and we should just leave them alone and get, let them get on with it. I'm a great believer that if you pay for it, then you should be able to use it. I thought that when you when when money exchanged hands, then you own something. My taxpayers' money is going into these schools. I should be allowed to just use them and with no offence. Now, these calculations that uh, Chris Bonner and um, Bernie Shepherd are coming are actually very conservative. Oh. They're based on 4.1%, not 6% of students enrolling in fully funded private schools in this scenario. But the strong current or presence of private schools in Australia suggests that schools choosing to become fully private would enrol many more than about 4 or 5 or even 6%. In other words, the net cost of this plan to nationalise education in Australia, mm-hmm. to not fund private schools, the net cost to the nation uh, would be conceivably a saving. Well, conceivably a saving. Certainly if you'd start uh, doing the work on duplication of facilities. Um, and uh, the, yes, most definitely. Now, as they say themselves, this is Bonner and Shepard, they say anyone can offer good reasons why the structural and funding scenarios described by them won't happen and why they may or may not even be desirable. But that's beside the point of what they're saying. What they have said is the idea that private schooling saves public money in recurrent funding terms no longer holds up. It's just not true anymore. If the saving argument made any sense years ago, it certainly doesn't today. It seems to us that there are now four possible ways of dealing with this new reality that most public and private schools receive equivalent public funding. Firstly, those who accept this new school funding status quo need to come up with some argument to explain and justify it. This might actually be hard to do, but in the past we've always come up with a narrative to justify the unusual and unexplicable in ways that we fund schools, so maybe that can happen. The second response is to wind back public funding to the levels that existed two decades ago when private schools received a small amount of public support, with the bulk of funding coming from school fees. Even this would be more generous than the situation that exists for private schools in most countries, most comparable countries. A third response is to integrate those private schools who want full public funding into the state school system on the condition that they no longer charge fees and become subject to the obligations and rules of existing state schools. In the past, this solution has been explored in Australia and dismissed as being too expensive for governments. That barrier is certainly much lower now, but there are very good reasons why it still won't and shouldn't happen. 
And, of course, uh, Connors and McMorrow don't actually propose this. They're just putting it forward as a potential solution. It happened in in New Zealand, and you very quickly have what you call captured schools. We opposed it when it was put forward in the 70s and 80s. Particularly in the 80s, uh, the head of the Australian Education Union, Bluer, was putting this idea forward, and uh, the dogs and others opposed it at that time. Mm. But uh, it's raising its head again. Uh, In the inside story, a gentleman has recently written up and said that the uh, New Zealand system should be tried in Australia. But I'm afraid the dogs disagree. We're getting to the point uh, that we were in the 19th century. State aid leads to inequalities. It's a very, very silly um, policy for a democracy. It is not a policy for a democracy. It is a policy for a theocracy or an oligarchy. Um, It's actually quite medieval. We'll actually have a fourth, a fourth, um, a fourth gene, which which you should definitely feel uh, free to respond to. Their fourth response is to try and create something which might have a better chance of working, namely much stronger alignment between the level of public funding of schools and the publicness of their obligation and operation. Such an alignment might be achieved through the ideas of what they term a public charter. The purpose of such a charter, which is itself a dirty word in some contexts, will be to express the public purpose of government in providing public funding for education in operational terms. In accepting public funding, a school would agree to act as an agent for the government in terms of delivering its public purpose in education, and agree to operate the school in a manner consistent with legislation and regulations applying to government schools. Such a charter might address matters such as enrolment and employment practices, right of access and related costs, student welfare and so on. Sounds good, but when you're dealing with the Catholic Education Office or the private schools again and again and again, they play the game and they're not fair and you can't trust them. Yes. Well, one thing, is, one thing is certain. Doing nothing is not an option. What we have isn't sustainable. Take them over. And actually has to change. It is a nonsense to have similar, often adjacent schools receiving similar levels of taxpayer support yet operating under different obligations to the public that pays for them. It's just, it's just really is that simple. If you if you go down to, if you go down, not back to anything, if you go down the road to Seaford, there are two state schools and a Catholic school. Two state schools and a Catholic school. The Catholic school has the highest ICSIA value of all three and it has the highest level of funding of all three. Just go down the road. Now, that's not stats. That, 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 that's an anecdote. But what what's actually happening in, in, a, in Victoria, if, in Victoria in particular because of what the Labor government did, the first act that they did, is that Catholic schools in Victoria have 104% funding level of comparable state schools with comparable ICSIA values. Catholic schools get more government money, more gov- more government money than government schools But they're not in necessarily Victoria. doing a better job at all. And they're demonstrably not doing a better job. Demonstrably not. The, the, the kids from the similar ICSIA values, the kids from, from the same... You know, if you go down to Seaford... Kids in the state schools are doing just fine, thank you very much. Just as fine as the kids in the Catholic schools down the road. Separating children out on the basis of their race or their religion or their sexuality, which is what private schools can do. They are exempt from the laws of Australia. 
That, that's the whole point of being a private school. You can kick people out. You can pick and you can choose. And actually, just a little anecdote after these messages, which I think Dar would like to share with you. It's, it's a musical anecdote as well. Anyway, back with the dogs after these. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving social security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial podcast and available at www.adogs.info. Oh, you can just get hold of us any way you like. Uh, we're here to defend government schools. And we're here to defend government schools for lots of reasons, both big and small. And we've just had a very detailed examination about how private schools no longer save taxpayers' money so they can put that argument in their pipe and smoke it. <laughs> um, but also we defend them for, for the little reasons as well. What is it about state schools that, that, we, that we and people in Australia value so much? It's because they do things for everybody. They have mm. the best values of edu- any education system in Australia by definition. And sometimes this is borne out not just in statistics but in little stories. Now, Chris Bonner, he was the author of one well, – actually, he's got a, an, an Order of Australia as well, Chris Bonner. He's a very clever fellow. Um, he has a friend who told him a story and he thought he'd like to share it and we thought we'd like to share it with you. Isn't that right, Dale? That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's a sweet anecdote, but um, it's indicative of some of the larger realities we've been discussing. It's called blowing your own trumpet. If there was one quality for which I thought I could always – rely on a leading exclusive pub private school, it was the capacity to blow its own trumpet. But now I'm not so sure. Several times recently, my eye has been drawn to a newspaper advertisement from a leading Anglican school emphasising excellence in development of young people, fostering the all-round growth of children in a Christian environment. Note here the word emphasising. The school's been advertising its scholarships 2018 program. Among its music scholarships, open to boys with outstanding ability in playing an orchestral instrument for entry into Year 7, 2008, the ad stated, that for one of these, preference will be given to boys with an ability to play French horn. I will reveal later why this caught my eye. It would seem that there's a breathless hush in this particular school's orchestra, with few, if any, of its students being able or willing for the honour of their school to breathe life into the French horn. It is, by all accounts, a challenging instrument to master. Bereft, it would seem, of the will or effort to grow its own French horn player, (laughs) the school has exercised the option of using its superior resources to trawl through the pool of talent beyond the school to buy one ready-made. Not for this school the option of augmenting the nation's pool of French horn players. Instead, such schools conduct annual raids and, like the world's great conquerors, seize treasures, artworks and intellectual achievements from others to bathe in reflected glory. To be fair to the school, it did say emphasising excellence, not creating it. 
Given the public pronouncements of some of the authoritarian headmasters of such schools over the years, it was surprising that any of these men yielded so limply to the absence of French horn players in their student ranks. These are men who have no compunction about ordering students how to wear their hair or enforcing strict dress codes. We might have imagined that, caught in this sad predicament, such a headmaster might have simply ordered a few of his boys into his study and directed them to each pick up an instrument from his side table and to be back in six months' time able to play it, or to be expelled. Whatever happened to the play up, play up and play the game? Or has selective breeding over the years reduced the lung capacity required to produce a sweet note from such instrument? Has the need to import lusty sporting champions from poorer families or schools now extended to the arts? You may wonder why this particular advertisement should catch my eye. It's because our family happens to have the very lad the the Anglican school may be seeking. We're not an overly sentimental clan. But when we gathered for Christmas recently, our lad, who's gone from small to tall overnight, favoured us with such a sweet rendition of Danny Boy on his French horn that he brought a tear tear to my eye. At the unanimous request of his audience, ranging in age from 9 to 75, he played it through for us three times. It was a moving performance and we only returned to normal when his down-to-earth uncle gave him a word of advice. You know, mate, if you went and stood outside the Irish club and played that, you'd make a mozza. A few years ago at his public primary school, which has an outstanding orchestra supported by dedicated teachers and the school community as a whole, our grandson had put his then little hand up when the offer was made for all those interested in learning an instrument and joining the school orchestra to come and try out. On the day, it seemed he was the only one able to produce a sound from the French horn, and it went from there from the early days of cacophonous attempts through his through to his high school and Danny Boy, taught and guided all the way by one of the gifted musicians the school attracts year after year as well as its own teachers, because of a shared love of music and pride in growing young musicians. He has the added bonus of being in a large public system that has the capacity to bring talented young players together from across a range of all schools. Our lad won't be leaving his leading, inclusive school behind to take up a 2018 scholarship in a school that has to buy in talent. And neither should we. Schools hold a mirror to society, and we need to take a good hard look at the kind of society we aspire to be and the kind of schools we need to achieve our finest hopes. Isn't that sweet? Yes. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Coming to the end of the program, just a few more things, but after these messages. you got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. 
Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy Nadoff! Well, listeners, last week we did quite a lot on America and uh, Trump and the new Secretary of Education, DeVos. And the Democrats have really been working very, very hard on getting the the, uh, Republicans, some of them, to realise that this is just a very, very, very bad appointment. And uh, Diane Ravitch tells us that this is the current list of Republican senators who have not committed... Uh, there's a Gardner Co, a Toomey, a Toomey, a Flake, and of course McCain, uh, Sullivan, Heller, and Portman, and uh, they are still working on it. And certainly, uh, Elizabeth Warren has very good reasons, which she gave in a speech to the Senate as to why she was not going to vote for Betty DeVos. And here is Elizabeth Warren. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I want to say I share uh, Senator Murray's and Senator Murphy's frustration with the confirmation process. We were not allowed to ask Ms. DeVos a second round of questions during her hearing, which I was allowed to do during the previous Secretary of Education's hearing. Instead, we were forced to have a hearing before her ethics review was finished, and we were denied a second hearing to question Ms. DeVos about her very complicated ethics documents and the shady investments that she insists on keeping. Now, Mrs. DeVos hasn't even completed the committee paperwork, which means she is still hiding critical information from this committee. This is a rush job by Republicans. And the American people, I think, are smart enough to see what's happening here. I will vote against Mrs. DeVos's nomination to serve as Secretary of Education because her nomination is not in the best interest of America's young people. You know, Mrs. DeVos has repeatedly demonstrated her contempt for public education. Her record on K-12 education has been focused on using her vast fortune to push her own ideology on hardworking families that are just trying to get their kids a decent education in public schools. Not only are her ideas completely uninformed by experience with public schools, but the evidence is clear that her K-12 privatization theories are bad for students. I also want to point out that a very important part of what the Secretary of Education does has to do with colleges, with higher education. I gave her the opportunity to prove to the American people that she is serious about standing up for students. During her confirmation hearing, I asked Mrs. DeVos basic, straightforward questions about her commitment to protecting students and taxpayers from fraud committed by shady for-profit colleges. But she was unwilling to commit to using the department's many tools and resources to keep students from getting cheated when fraudulent colleges break the law. And in her responses to my written questions, she even refused to commit to canceling the loans of students who have been cheated by law-breaking colleges, a requirement that is there in the law. Her refusal to enforce the law will saddle thousands of people with debts that the law says they are not obligated to pay. 
Mrs. DeVos also plans to maintain financial ties that could create conflicts of interest. I wrote to Mrs. DeVos last week with several of my Democratic colleagues to raise concerns about her potential conflicts, things that clearly are not resolved by her public ethics agreement. We requested a response to simple questions regarding the lack of transparency in the investments that she would maintain in family trusts and the lingering potential for conflicts of interest, and we have not received an answer from Mrs. DeVos. I've listened to the chairman characterize Democrats' opposition to Mrs. DeVos as an opposition to charter schools. That simply is not true. Before her nomination hearing, I received a letter sent to me by the Massachusetts Charter Public School Association about Mrs. DeVos's devastating record of promoting for-profit and online charter schools with virtually no accountability or oversight for how well these schools actually serve students. I entered that letter into the record during her hearing. Unlike the thoughtful, innovative, and successful education policies we have embraced in Massachusetts with regard to public charter schools, the policies Mrs. DeVos has bankrolled have drained valuable taxpayer dollars out of the public education system in Michigan and left Michigan's kids worse off. I have heard from thousands of teachers, parents, of education leaders in Massachusetts raising deep concerns about Mrs. DeVos. I hear their concerns and I share their concerns. It is hard to imagine a candidate less qualified or more dangerous to be entrusted both with our country's education policy and with the trillion-dollar student loan program. And that is why I urge my colleagues to reject Mrs. DeVos's nomination. Well, uh, it's a 50-50 over there in America at the moment um, and there's a worry that Mike Pence will be the tiebreaker. As you're worrying about Trump, please understand that the real game was always Mike Pence, so watch him carefully. Uh, And um, that's all for us for this week. And uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the dogs program. It's pretty meaty. It's always pretty meaty. But we are about education and the education of our children is just that important. So we hope you'll stay listening to 3CR and be back with us at 12 noon next week. And if you want to find out more about us, go to the website at www.adogs.info. But bye for now. Bye for now.
horses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Says he.